So, last week we finished up the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, chapters two and three. Uh, and I was going to be done uh, with that, but then uh, remembered chapters four and five. Um, imagine this. They're like really complementary to the previous chapters. So, we're going to go through four, we're going to go through four and five um, as well. And it's almost as if John is saying to the people, okay, uh, these people, we've learned all about these cities and all the things that they were going through and all the pressures that they were under to sort of be and become and do things that they, they felt like they, they, they weren't called to be and do and become by, by God, right? So, so it's almost as if John is saying, okay, so that I know life is hard for you. Here's how you make your way through it. So that's what we have in chapters 4 and 5. This is how you make your way through it. Pay attention to this. So um, we're about to read chapter 4, the whole thing. Uh, and as you do, you might think to yourself, whoa, this is weird. And it is. It's, it's weird. It's overwhelming. It's, it's intense. It's visual. So I want you to use your imagination. I want you to feel it. I want you to see it. I want you to capture it in your mind's eye. See if you can see the things that, that John is explaining and talking about, because that's what he wants from you. Um, and I, I think it'll be good. Also, we're going to do some work. It's okay that we're, we got to work hard this morning. Uh, because this vision is like, whoa! So we're going to work, and that's good, because you're all smart people, and we're going to work through it, and it's going to be good. Um, also, chapters 4 and 5 kind of go together. So as we get to the end this morning, um, you might feel like, wait, that's it? Uh, it might feel a little bit incomplete. That's because it kind of is. Uh, and then next week, we'll, we'll get even deeper into it as we, as we go into chapter 5. All of that makes sense? All that by way of introduction to this. So, uh, Revelation 4, you'll find it on the screen there. You'll find it in front of you if you've got it with you. Before we read it, let's pray uh, together. God, thank you for this book, for, for the Bible, the Scriptures. Thank you that you speak. Because when you speak, mountains move. Because your word, your voice, uh, it creates things. It's, it's generative. It's creative. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are wide open uh, so that your word might, might do something in us again today. Change us transform us, mold us, make us into the kind of people who look and talk and live like Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. This is what must take place. 
This is of utmost importance. This has to happen. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had the face of a person. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We'll go that far. What? Wow, right? That's a vision right there. Did, could you see it? Could you imagine it? Did you, or should we read it again? Did you catch Thor was in there? With Mjolnir? No. There's lightning and thunder. And I was like, that's like Thor. Anyway. Um, just amazing, right? And, uh, okay, so as we get into this, um, we're going to begin with something that we, we don't do very often. Um, we're going to do a responsive reading uh, together. Now, this is going to be a little different than a responsive reading that you, that you may be familiar with. Um, normally, we would all stand during a responsive reading because it, it sort of has that feel to it. Uh, this time, it's, it's a little bit different. It doesn't sort of command that sort of feeling. Uh, so we're not, we're not going to stand uh, because this is, this is different. Uh, and I promise you, I promise you this, this will all make sense. So a responsive reading, there's, there's the leader part, and then there's the all part. So I'll read the leader part, and then we'll all together read the all part. Um, but when, uh, while you're reading, just uh, think, about the, think about the words that you're saying. Um, again, envision them in your head, uh, and I'll explain it a little bit. It'll all make sense. Are you ready? All right, let's go. Ooh, ooh. Ooh, 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 ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high. 
than the dreams that you dream of once in a lullaby. Oh, somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. And the dreams that you dream of, dreams really do come true. Oh, oh. Someday I'll wish upon a star, wake up where the clouds are far behind me, where trouble melts like lemon drops high above the chimney tops. That's where you'll find me. Oh, somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Birds fly over the rainbow. Oh, why, oh, why can't I? Nice. That was pretty good. I told you it was different, right? So here's the deal. I wanted to play a YouTube video of someone singing that song because whenever I hear that song and when it's done well, I get goosebumps. It's just one of those songs. But if we put it on there because we stream live, Facebook might catch wind of it and mute it. We don't want that. And later when we put it on YouTube, uh, they might just take it down altogether because of that's their deal, right? So we had to come up with a creative way to get the lyrics of this song to you. And I didn't want to just read it because boring. So uh, we did responsive reading. <laughs> I think it worked well. Thanks, Justine. It was her idea. Got to give credit where credit is due. So uh, here's the deal. I want to think about the lyrics of that song. I promise you this will all make sense. I have some questions for you about the lyrics of that song. Okay, Is that song about a real land? over a real rainbow, right? Is it, where, is it about a real land where dreams just sort of magically come true? Is that song about a real place where real troubles like real lemon drops melt over the chimney tops? Apparently that's where you'll find whoever it is that's singing that song. At the time, it's a place where happy little bluebirds fly, and if they can fly in a land somewhere over the rainbow, then why can't, why can't I? Right? Is, it, is it really about a real rainbow, a real land, real bluebirds, and real lemon drops? Is it? No, it's not. Of course not. It's a song about something. It's about something beyond those things. Right? It's a song that's pointing to a truth that's deeper than all of those things. The song conveys hope. The song is about the future. It's about a time where we can be something. It's about a time where we can, where we can do something. Our dreams come true and we, we make a real actual difference in the world and our lives really do matter. Now, just because the song, in the song, the rainbow, we're not talking about literal rainbows. We're not talking about literal bluebirds. We're not talking about a real land over a rainbow somewhere. Does that make the song any less true? No, it doesn't, because the song is pointing to something beyond itself. Now, the only reason I bring this up is because that's kind of like the literature we're reading here in Revelation. Remember, we're, in, we're now in the deep end in what we call apocalyptic literature. And this kind of literature has all sorts of symbols and metaphors and images associated with it. And these words point to something beyond 
themselves. They point to something more real than the words we're actually reading, than the words themselves. John is using words to describe something, an experience, an experience for which there are no words. There isn't adequate language to describe what it is that he, he experienced when he was caught up, as he says, in the Spirit. So John is using words to sort of fire up our imaginations so that we really see it in our brains. He wants us to see all the colors and images. He wants us to do it because he's trying hard to get us to experience in some way a little bit of what he experienced. That's what apocalyptic literature does. That's the kind of literature we're reading here. Remember, apocalypse means the, the revealing of that which was previously hidden or, or the unveiling of that which is really hard to see. Like we don't see it all the time. And so apocalypse means the unveiling almost as if there's a veil between heaven and earth. And John is sort of pulling that that veil to the side so that we can see the place where heaven and earth come together and we can all experience it. So what did John see? What did he see? What do we do with this? We'll get there too, but first we have to remember um, who are the people to whom John is writing? We have to remember because this is, there's a context here. There's, he's a pastor writing to real people in a real place in a real time. And we just walked through the seven letters to the seven churches and we learned all sorts of really interesting things about the cities where these people lived. So John is writing to followers of Jesus who had heard about all the things that Jesus said all of the things that he taught, all of the amazing things that he did. Right? John is writing to, to people who had learned about his death, who had learned about his resurrection, who had learned about how Jesus is coming back again, and one day he's going to set the world right and he's going to make it all good again. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and nothing happened. Jesus didn't return Jesus didn't make things better again. The whole world wasn't set right like they were waiting expectantly for. In fact, just the opposite happened. The Roman Empire only got stronger. The cult of the Roman Empire only got stronger. In these cities, they were surrounded by great, grand, gleaming temples. Right, dedicated to the worship of other gods and goddesses. And there were certain rites and rituals that they would have to perform in order to, in order to sort of feel like they were a part of society. And because these people, these early Jesus followers, wouldn't participate in these rites and rituals that were, that were dedicated to the worship of other gods, they were seen as weird, different, odd. In some ways, they were seen as a very th a threat to society that they lived in. So they experienced marginalization. Some of them lost their homes, their businesses. Some of them were beaten. Some of them were thrown in jail. Some of them were executed. So life in Asia Minor for these people, these early followers of Jesus, it was really hard. They had all of these pressures coming at them from all sorts of different angles to be and act in ways that, that they know they weren't meant to be. Right? So that's the people he's writing to. Now, when we last left John, we left him in his letter to the church in Laodicea, where we came across this image of a door at which Jesus was standing 
and knocking. And he says, anyone, if anyone who hears my voice opens the door, I will come and eat with them and they with me. At the end of that letter, it's like this invitation to connect with the divine. Here in chapter 4, just a couple of verses later, what's the first thing John sees? He sees a door. It's like it goes together or something. He sees a door. It's a door to heaven, and it's standing wide open. Imagine that. The door of heaven is wide open, and he hears the voice of Jesus. He says, come up here. Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place next. Another invitation to connect with the divine. Come up here, Jesus says, and I'll show you what must take place. This is of utmost importance. This is the thing that matters, maybe matters more than anything else in the world. So it's another invitation. And then the next thing that he sees is a throne, right? The throne is in the middle of this vision with everything else sort of encircling it. Right? In fact, this throne is important. It's so important that John talks about it a lot. He's like, here's a throne, here's a throne, here's a throne, here's a throne. In 11 verses, he mentions the throne 10 different times. Through repetition, John is saying, hey, y'all, the throne is important. Pay attention to the throne. It's an important throne. And it's not just any throne. It's an occupied throne. There is one sitting on the throne. And the one who sits on the throne had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Oh my goodness. Beautiful jewels that reflect light and color and beauty. It's an occupied throne. It's as if John is saying to the people through this revelation, hey, you, you, think, you think Rome rules? You think Caesar has a throne? I got a throne. Caesar only has a throne because I've let him have a throne for a little while, but I've got the throne that matters. I've got the only throne that matters. You think all the pressures you're under coming at you from all sorts of different directions, you think those rule your life? Mm -mm. Nope. I do. I rule your life. I'm on my throne. And then we see this emerald rainbow, right? Which, of course, makes us think of another rainbow, right? You, you, you come up against a rainbow in Revelation, and it makes you think of another rainbow, doesn't it? It's that rainbow way back in, in Genesis. It's the rainbow of the Noah story. So here's a rainbow, and we think immediately of that rainbow. And in that story, the rainbow is a symbol of God's power, but it's a symbol of grace, mercy, protection, and love, right? That's how God uses God's power. God's not going to use the power He has to sort of destroy everything. God is going to use God's power as mercy, grace, protection, and love. That's the way God uses His power. And we see abuses of power all the time, all around us in all sorts of different places. Abuses of power in homes, abuses of power at work, in schools, in neighborhoods, in cities, in states, in nations. 
We see the abuse of power all the time to force people to do what we want them to do, to make them act in a certain way. God says, I don't use my power that way. That's not how I do it. My power is used is through grace and love and healing and protection of that rainbow. Next, we have 24 elders sitting on, on 24 thrones, right? This is generally understood to represent two things. We've got the 12 tribes of Israel out of which Jesus comes. Then what did Jesus do? Jesus gathered 12 disciples, later called apostles, both the nation of Israel and the 12 apostles, which eventually becomes the church, are the representation of Jesus, of God in the world. So that's the God we're talking about here. The one who started putting the world back together again through the nation of Israel, acted decisively in the person of Jesus through his death and resurrection, and now works again through the church, the other 12 disciples, continuing to put things back together through his people. This world is headed somewhere big and bold and beautiful and so, so good. And we all are called to be a part of it, partnering with God at making the world the way God wants the world to be. Oh, there's so much going on here. It's so good. And then we have these six weird, or we have these four weird looking animals, right? These four weird looking animals with wings and eyes all over them, pointing us back to the winged creatures we find in another place in Scripture. It's like a hyperlink. You click it and it brings you all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6. Right where we have other winged creatures flying and there's a throne there. But in this vision, one of them has the face of a lion, the king of the wild beasts. Another one has the, the face of an ox, the king of the domesticated animals. Another one has the, the face of a flying eagle, which is the king of birds of the air. And another one, the face of a human being, the one who rules over all the animals. The number four is often a symbol. I told you we're going to work hard. The number four is a symbol of the four points of the compass, north, south, east, west, right? So, so here in these animals, we have a representation of all the animals, of all of creation. It's all-encompassing. So we have these animals representing all of creation. And what are they doing? What are the animals doing? With these weird wings and eyes and flapping wings and faces that are all wacky, what are they doing? They're singing a song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. They're singing. And every time they sing... What do the 24 elders do? They fall on their faces and worship before the throne. They worship the Creator of all things. So, what do we have? What is happening here? What is going on here? This is an invitation to give honor and glory to the Creator of all things, to the one who is in the middle of it all on the throne. It's an invitation to worship. It's one big, great, grand invitation to worship. But listen, this, this worship is, a, is a, 
a dramatically expansive view of worship. Now, when we think of worship, we normally think of worship as, as when we gather together here on a Sunday morning, it begins in 10 and it ends again at 11 o'clock, 11.05, depending on how long-winded I am, right? It's done about that time. That's what worship is. And then it's done. It's over. And we go eat lunch and then we, we have a restful afternoon and we go to work during our week. And then we come back for worship again on Sunday. This is a big, expansive view of what worship is. When we gather here together as a people and we worship together, it's not something that just begins at 10 because we say it does and ends at 11 because we say it does. No, we're, we're jumping in on something that's already taking place. It's already happening, and it's been happening for a really long time. We're, already, we're joining in on what the rest of creation is already doing all the time, giving honor and glory to the one who is on the throne. All of creation, the whole world is sacred space. All of creation, the whole world is a sanctuary filled with singing and songs, giving honor and glory to the Lord on the throne. How can that be? What, is ha- what do we mean by that? Well, I'll tell you. All of creation is giving honor and glory to the Creator all the time because by its very existence, it's pointing beyond itself to the Creator of all things. All of creation is giving honor and glory to the creator of all things because by its very existence, it's pointing beyond itself to the creator of all things. How many times have you found yourself out late at night and you see the stars and you're just overcome with this feeling of awe and wonder and you're like, oh my goodness, the thing is so huge and I'm so small. You're getting caught up in what we're talking about here. You're just overwhelmed by something that's so, so big and vast. Or think of it like this. We find ourselves on a trip, all of us together. Maybe we get in a bus, maybe not. Maybe we do a a big, long car ride together, and we find ourselves in South Dakota, and we're looking up at Mount Rushmore. Never been there. I would love to go someday. Four faces of former presidents perfectly carved into stone right? We would learn that each face, listen to this, is as tall as a six-story building, right? We learn that, that each nose is 20 feet long. We learn that, that each mouth is 18 feet wide. We learn that each eye is 11 feet across. And if these were real heads on real people, these people would stand six, 465 feet tall, Right? We would look at this and we would experience it and we would all be amazed. It would be like, oh my goodness. Right? We would all think to ourselves, how in the world did this get here? And maybe at first we would think, well, over the years, wind and rain and snow and rock slides sort of happened and it carved these perfect stone faces of former presidents and and that's exactly how it happened. And then we would eventually come to the realization that there's like a 0% chance of that ever happening. So the very next question we would think to ourselves is, who did this? Who made this thing? Who created this? And then we would learn that the sculptor John Borglum is its creator. 
And we would learn all sorts of amazing things about the process by which this thing was formed that amazes us all. And we would all think, wow, that guy's awesome. By its very existence, Mount Rushmore brings honor and glory to its creator. It's kind of like that. By its very existence, all of creation gives honor and glory to God. So when we gather together and do our little thing on Sunday morning that starts and ends at 10 and then ends at 11, no, 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 no. We're just joining in on something that's already happening, on something that's much, much, much bigger than ourselves. We're joining in on worship that's already taking place. And this has a powerful effect on our lives because it gives us a center. When we gather here week after week after week after week and we pay attention to the one who made us, the creator of all things, we remind ourselves who we are, it gives us a center. Think about the vision. Think about what the vision is all about. You have God on the throne in the middle and everything else encircles it, surrounds the throne. God, the creator, is the center. Here's what John is saying to the people in Asia Minor and to us. If we don't stop and pay attention and worship God who is on the throne, the creator of all things, we'll wind up worshiping the world itself or, or the forces within the world. Things like money, sex, pleasure, power, the self. Remember back. Think about, think about all the things that we learned about all the different other gods and goddesses, their temple rituals, the things that they did. They were all about wealth pleasure, power, the self. It is no different today. We like to think we're all sophisticated. We do. We like to think that we don't give our lives over to these other little gods and goddesses, but we just don't call them gods and goddesses anymore. But we've all given ourselves over to these other things. Money, pleasure, wealth, power, the self. We all let those things rule our lives. And John says those are created things. John says some of those things are, are distorted understandings of what those things were meant to be. Don't worship those things. Don't let those things rule your life. Worship God who's on the throne in the center. God doesn't want to be another thing on the list of things that we do. Just another thing that we show up to an hour on Sunday. God is the center. God is on the throne. God is the center of it all. It's why regular worship is so important because we come here week after week after week after week after week and we remind ourselves who we belong to. We, mind, we remind ourselves who we are. And when we experience this pattern of regular worship, suddenly it just sort of becomes a part of us and it begins to, to ooze into the rest of our lives. So when something goes wrong in our lives, we can remain calm because we know we have a God on the throne in the center of it all. 
when someone wrongs us or hurts us, we can respond with, with patience, with forgiveness, with grace, because we have a patient, forgiving, gracious God on the center of the throne in our lives. When we look out at the world and we see, we see things that are wrong in the world and we see things that are broken in the world, we can respond with self-sacrificing, self-giving love because we have a God who is self-sacrificing, self-giving love on the center of the throne in our lives. Do you see how transformative this really is? So this morning, this whole vision, this whole entire thing is just a great big invitation to worship. With all of our lives, it's an invitation to bow down. It's an invitation to surrender ourselves, our whole lives, to the one who is on the throne. That's it. I told you it was going to feel incomplete. There's more next week, so we'll do it when we get there. Let's pray.